0: During this podcast, I'll discuss with Dr. Suzanne DeBianco, Executive Director of the California-based Catalyst for Payment Reform, State Healthcare Policy Innovation. Suzanne, welcome to the program. Thanks, David. It's nice to be here. Uh, Suzanne's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, as has been well documented, the federal government over the past few decades has become increasingly dysfunctional, Impaired or increasingly inert. For example, in the 1980s, nearly 6% of federal legislation was enacted. So far this decade, it's less than 3%. Consequently, policy innovation has shifted to the states. This reality may be no more true than in healthcare policy. For example, in 2019, or the just um, past 2019 legislative session, it resulted in 29 states passing Medicaid-related legislation, 13 states passing health insurance legislation, and 10 states passed health care assignment and billing legislation. During this podcast, we'll discuss what states are doing to improve health care delivery and reduce spending growth with, again, Dr. Suzanne Delbanco. So with that as introduction, uh, Suzanne, my sort of standard uh, introductory question is, could you give us a brief overview of the work or activity of the Catalyst for Payment Reform?
1: I'd be happy to. Um, Catalyst for Payment Reform has been around since 2010, and it's really an effort to provide thought leadership to and coordination among employers and other big healthcare purchasers who want to get better value for their healthcare spending. Uh, as our name suggests, Catalyst for Payment Reform. We believe that payment reform is one of the underutilized levers, or at least it has been in the past, uh, in terms of trying to uh, align the incentives correctly to get higher quality, more efficient, more affordable care. But as soon as you pursue better value in healthcare as an employer or other kinds of kinds of healthcare purchaser, you're looking for you know, better benefit designs, better uh, provider network designs more transparency into what's happening, you know, sort of under the hood of the healthcare system, and as much competition in the marketplace as possible to have good choices. Um, our members are largely, you know, uh, well-known large private employers, but we also have a growing number of state Medicaid employee and retiree agencies, as well as a couple of universities, some of those, you know, multi-employer union trust funds, and, we even have a nonprofit as a member. So uh, we've got a diverse membership, but what they have in common is that they're very sophisticated, progressive, innovative buyers of healthcare.
0: Okay, thank you. So let's get into some of these uh, silos. Uh, you mentioned uh, two uh, transparency and competition. Let's start with uh, price transparency. And I mention this in part because there is a current proposed uh, CMS uh, Medicare rule. The outpatient prospective payment system, and that uh, proposes to expand uh, federal requirements for price transparency under two White House executive orders. Um, so, in that context, uh, over half the states have passed related laws. Some interested in your assessment of uh, the effect that these um, state laws have had um, in allowing or enabling uh, consumers to. Um, better shop for uh, healthcare care services?
1: Well, let me just say that, at least from CPR's perspective, my organization's perspective, when we talk about transparency, we talk about it at many levels. So sure. the first place most people's minds go is the consumer. And, you know, as consumers, we sure feel like we have the right to know about the quality of care and about what prices we're going to be paying. So I can talk about what states have tried to do to address that. But I also want to add, before I go there, that as bigger buyers of healthcare, you know, employers, state agencies, et cetera, um, having insight into how well the marketplace is working, what kind of value you're going to get from one provider versus another, that matters sort of, you know, from a business perspective or or purchasing perspective as well. So, um, I'll talk first about, you know, the the consumer side because, um, you know, that's where you pointed me, but I just want to you know, add that those other layers matter. So when it comes to supporting, you know, uh, state citizens' access to information about health care costs and quality, um, you know, there's been a variety of approaches. There's still a lot of states that have done absolutely nothing to try to ensure that citizens have access to that information. And some have gone as far as putting together what's called an all-payer claims database, or mm-hmm. APCD, um, where they pool data from private health insurers Along with uh, Medicaid and Medicare, and some in, you know individual and self-insured employers who you know don't use the insurance services of a of an insurer, but just the administrative services of an insurer, they can contribute their data as well. And then when you have you, you did all pooled about how much is being spent on what healthcare services, you can draw conclusions from it about. The total cost of care for getting a certain type of procedure done at a given healthcare provider's uh, facility, or you might be able to draw some conclusions using these data about the quality of care at different healthcare providers. And some states put these uh, all care claims databases together, and then they even mandate a website um, uh, that the state citizens can go to. They can put in information about their insurance plan and start getting information back about how much it might cost them to go to a given provider for a certain procedure or service. So some states have gone really far. Others have done much lighter um, uh, steps like requiring hospitals to answer questions about costs um, within 24 hours of a patient calling um, or in some cases, you know, you've got states collecting information on hospital charges. Uh, and not even posting them. So there's there's a wide variety of activity from you know, the very robust, which is just a handful of states, to virtually nothing to nothing, which is the majority of states.
0: Okay, thank you for noting uh, these APCDs, all-payer claims databases, and uh, one of the uh, benefits thereof is that um, the consumer would have uh, more protection uh, or be less exposed potentially to surprise or balanced uh, uh, billing, so thank you for uh, mentioning those. The other, so you mentioned transparency and competition. Let's go to this ladder. There are a number I know of uh, state efforts around trying to improve competition. So banning certain uh, contract clauses. Could you explain what those are?
1: Yeah. Well, let me let me just start by saying that um, the information for consumers doesn't necessarily protect them against surprise billing. Sure. Sure. Because, you know, even when these websites are up, it's not necessarily going to tell you if your anesthesiologist is in a lot of network. Mm-hmm. Um, you still might get a surprise bill. It just might give you a ballpark, um, a pretty decent estimate of how much you're going to end up having to pay out of pocket or how much the total cost is. So I just wanted to clarify that. Sure. Right. Um, Exposure so to then, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so then thinking about transparency and, and contracting, um, So, you know, there are a variety of practices that we are aware of that take place between healthcare providers and healthcare payers where, you know, negotiations happen where the payer is trying to get a lower price. In return, the provider might ask for certain contract provisions that protect it from losing patient volume. So, for example, they might say, "Um, I don't want you to post any information about my quality or my prices. Uh, and so if you want me in your network, you can't do that. Or they might say, um, you are not allowed, a uh, payer, uh, to create any insurance products that could potentially steer patients away from, from me, um, either due to my higher prices or my lower quality or some combination thereof. Um, so they, they're sort of well known as anti-curing and steering clauses. Um, we don't really know exactly how prevalent these are um, because there's no public data on that. Um, but we do know they exist, and so they're probably more likely to exist uh, when a healthcare provider system is particularly dominant and has negotiating leverage to uh, insist on those clauses being put into contract.
0: Okay, thank you. The um, sort of the, one of the more substantive, of course, subtopics to this is our, our delivery and payment reforms. And we know, and this has been, uh, received a lot of attention, some states are moving towards creating an annual cap on on spending growth or their reference pricing uh, reimbursement to some factor of, of what Medicare reimburses. Can you explain what some of these are?
1: Yeah, so there's a variety of things going on, and let me try to distill the differences. So I would to classify the things you were mentioning into about three different categories. Okay. One is payment form, so changing the method with which we pay healthcare providers. Um, that might, for example, be a move away from traditional fee-for-service where you pay sort of a la carte for every unit of service that's delivered and instead start paying more and more toward a package price um, that puts on some financial risk onto the provider so that if they overspend, you know, they become sensitive to that. Um, they have to eat some of those costs. Uh, there's delivery reform, which is changing how healthcare is organized and delivered to patients. So we, you know, we hear a lot these days about um, accountable care organizations, in particular, which bring together, you know, typically all the providers that a patient would need, um, and they are jointly responsible for that patient's health and for a whole population's health. And they have a payment model that puts them at risk to some degree for their quality performance and. Uh, other aspects of performance. And then uh, the third category you were talking about really gets at price. You know, how much are we paying regardless of the method of payment? How much are we paying and what's a reasonable amount to pay? So something that we've just seen very recently come into um, the forefront is this idea of Medicare-based contracting, which is, you know, if we look at how much Medicare pays let's say a hospital, Um, and we know that in the commercial market, they're paying anywhere from, let's say, uh, you know, just uh, slightly more than what Medicare pays to 300% or so of what Medicare pays. Um, There are some rare circumstances in which a purchaser has enough leverage that they can say to healthcare providers, we're only going to pay you X percent of Medicare and no more, let's say it's 150%. And that's going to be the way that across the board, you know, like it or leave it. Um, this was happening in Montana, where the state was under severe, um, you know, budget duress and decided that uh, the state employee agency had enough leverage to put a program like that into place. Um, I know it's been proposed in North Carolina, um, and there's some other places that have been talking about it as well, but it, it really requires either legislation or some kind of um, very powerful leverage on the part of the purchaser to get healthcare providers to agree to do that.
0: Okay, thank you. So there's a benchmarking or reference to Medicare reimbursement. Some states are doing um, increases no more than a, a consumer price index um, variable. Other states have set up commissions, uh, and they benchmark a certain year-over-year Uh, percent growth in spending. So it's all variations on a theme. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Yeah. I mean, ultimately what we're trying to do here is to find a way to tamp down on one of the single biggest drivers of healthcare cost growth today, which is prices. Um, When we look at what's driving healthcare cost growth, you know, if you're at a cocktail party, the average person is going to say, Oh, it's new technologies. It's new medicine. It's the burden of chronic disease. It's the aging of our population. All of those things are true, but they're not as significant as uh, price increases, and those price increases are largely a result of a a massive amount of consolidation that's been happening among healthcare providers and therefore their ability um, to command higher prices. And so when you, you know, hear these comparisons about the U.S. versus other countries and how expensive it is here, a lot of that is driven by price. Some of it's driven by utilization. But uh, increasingly, uh, and going into the future, we're expecting it to be driven more
0: and more by price. Right. Exactly. This is the uh, the Uwe Reinhardt conversation. Um, So the ultimate, I'm imagining, at the state level, is a state global budget, and some states are doing this. Probably most um, noted is Maryland. Am I correct? And there are other states now that seem to be more or less de facto maybe not as formally as Maryland, but following that lead, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I this is an area I haven't studied too deeply. I mean, Maryland is one of the only remaining efforts of an original grouping of states that had tried to set rates somehow for hospitals. And my understanding of my memory is that many of them went by the wayside because the way that they were governed turned out to be too susceptible to political whims, and so they weren't able to sustain themselves, whereas Maryland has had a really independent governing body, you know, that has Mm -hmm. been able to, um, you know, sustain it over time. Um, I think the idea is that, you know, uh, a state can play a role in uh, determining what are reasonable rates and trying to intervene and um, uh, sort of if you will, um, mess with the marketplace just enough to make it work better um, and to, to try to stimulate greater competition on the things that we want there to be competition on.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, a different way of asking uh, these uh, questions or a similar way, um, what what states, if you were to ask to name two or three states that you think and, and for what reason do you think are um, more innovative Uh, in their approach to managing, again, prices and spending growth, and for what specific reason? I mean, generally, you know, Massachusetts gets called out pretty quickly. You know, you mentioned ACOs. Oregon have these uh, coordinated care organizations, uh, a couple other states. But what, in your mind, are states that are seemingly the earlier adopters? Yeah, I mean,
1: Massachusetts and Oregon are good ones. Um, Rhode Island did something interesting. You know, it's a state that is obviously very small. There's um, increasingly less competition among health care providers because there's been a lot of consolidation. Um, and so the state, through legislation, actually created the office of not just insurance commissioner but health insurance commissioner and gave that health insurance commissioner a, a fair amount of authority that's larger than in other states to review rates and things like that. And they actually created a... Um, Cap on how much of an increase there could be year over year, and how much health plans um, or payers are are paying healthcare providers as a way of trying to rebalance the power a little bit and saying, you know, you're not allowed to increase the amount you pay any more than this cap, and so you can try a provider to negotiate for something higher, but it's against the law. So I think I think Rhode Island, um, you know, has a, a model worth looking at. Um, We're seeing a lot of interesting things happening in Colorado. Um, Not only do they have a robust all-care claims database, um, they also have some laws on the books that allow employers to band together in in purchasing health care. There's something called the Peak Health Alliance that's been in the news uh, up in Summit County uh, where the ski resorts are, um, where they've been um, trying to negotiate in a new way, and the Colorado Business Group on Health is looking forward to um, uh, you know, trying to lead the way in some other purchaser-led activities in that state. Um, that, you know, gets sort of more marketplace, but it's laws that have created an environment where perhaps the market can work a little bit better. So those are a couple others that I would add. I mean, the only other one I think I'd like to call out, um, you know, with the little time that we have is New Hampshire, um, where they do have an all plan database. They have a great uh, website for consumers to see price information. Mm-hmm. And there's been some really good recent uh, study of what's happened in that state due to the transparency on prices. And you know, people like to argue, oh, with transparency, the low price providers are going to charge more. It's going to backfire. And in fact, they found in New Hampshire that that was not the case. Um, so I-, I think it's worth taking a look at what's happened there.
0: Yes, in fact, in my research, New Hampshire is usually the only state that gets called out on showing some demonstrated success in their price transparency efforts. I thought parochially you might mention uh, California. Um, anything particularly of, of note uh, relative to California's reforms? Well, I mean,
1: California is a large and complicated state, right. Um in some ways, you know, for years it's been doing what other states are trying to do around integrated delivery systems, and you know the kind of the concept of an ACO has been in place in California for a very long time. Um, there have been uh, different efforts at transparency in the state. Nothing has you know, fully stuck yet in terms of creating an all pair claims database. That's been a challenge. Um, but I think one of the biggest movers and shakers in the market here is Covered California. Um, you know, which is one of the successful um, insurance exchanges. And through their contracting practices, I think they've really um, paved the way for innovative benefit and network designs as well as quality expectations, you know, in a way that we haven't seen another force uh, you know, do in this state. So I would call that out as something uh, worth taking a look at.
0: Okay, thank you. Maybe my last question will be what's, what's been the response uh, uh, by the uh, provider community, with this state efforts to put downward pressure, just generally uh, uh, on prices, has there been any, uh, say, unintended negative consequences, say, loss of access, because providers have been responding um, in that maybe they're leaving markets? Um, but what what are we seeing on the on the supply side in all this?
1: Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, you know, this is one of these debates that can go on and on. You know, are, are, are the prices we're paying in the commercial market too high or too low? If you ask a provider, they will typically say they have to charge those prices right. to make up for the shortfalls <laughs> that they're getting from public sources. Right.
0: Right. But some
1: some so you know some studies have shown um, Medpac in particular has looked at this. Some studies have shown that in markets where there's a lot of competition among healthcare providers, they managed to get a fine margin on Medicare, and it's because they had to work hard to get their costs under control. It's always easier as a provider to raise your prices than to root out unnecessary costs. Um, So I think the reaction typically is, you know, uh, we're not getting paid enough. um, We need to get paid more. and, uh, you know, obviously coming from my perspective of working with employers and others who, you know, pay for health care, um, we're not quite as sympathetic about that. Um, but I think, uh, in general, um, you know, we've got a lot of inertia in the system. We have a lot of people who make a lot of money, a lot of systems that make a lot of money, and while some are hurting, and in some cases, particularly rural areas, we have to be concerned about access, no question. Um, I think we need to keep pushing harder on providers to to work harder on behalf of their patients because even though people like to say when it comes down to these types of concepts we've been talking about, like transparency, that patients just need to know what their out-of-pocket cost spending is. You know, we have to remember that ultimately the premiums we each pay are a reflection of those prices that we're paying all year. Uh, it's not just the cost sharing on the point of service. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know, but I've, I perfectly answered your question. No, good answer. Um, but I... I Yeah, I think we hear pushback all the time, and I think the question is, how
0: sympathetic should we be? Yes, absolutely. In fact, interesting statistic of recent is, despite the gains in coverage under the Affordable Care Act, uh, we have the same number of underinsured patients or consumers as we had in 2010 or before the ACA went into effect. Um, So that gets to your, your point about affordability. So with that, uh, Suzanne, I'll just make um, make note to the listener. Uh, Suzanne is a frequent contributor to the Health Affairs blog. August 22nd, she and her colleagues had a piece providing an overview of this conversation or can be viewed as such, the state of state legislation addressing health care costs and quality. And I'll, I'll provide a link to that when I post this interview. So with that, uh, Suzanne, thank you so much for your time. I'm very appreciative.
1: Yeah, and I just wanted to share one more resource for your listeners, which is that UC Hastings College of Law here in San Francisco um, uh, uh, agreed to partner with us to create a database of state laws that address all various efforts to impact quality and cost. And that can be found um, on the source on... it's called The Source, The Source on Healthcare Pricing Competition. Uh, it's a website, and that database is free for all to use. So if you want to look into
0: the laws in a given state or in a given topic, uh, it's there for you. All right, thank you. And I'll, I'll, I'll provide a link to it along with, um, with, this, with this interview. So thank you for that. Thank you again, Suzanne. My pleasure. Thanks, David. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please
1: listen again soon.